1: Hey, welcome to the Longform
0: Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Max Linsky, Evan Ratliff. What's hey. up, Aaron?
1: I'm really excited to be here.
0: I'm excited to be here, too. It's weird that I'm so excited in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, coming off of 19 coffees.
1: Uh, this week, uh, Evan talked to Patrick Radden-Keefe of The New Yorker. Staff writer at The New Yorker, author of two books, Chatter and Snakehead, The Snakehead. Uh, A guy who reports about national security He reports about spies He reports about Human smuggling Human smuggling, drug cartels He really gets inside the criminal syndicate And the intelligence world in an amazing way Yeah Uh, Our sponsor this week is Tiny Letter Tinyletter.com They are a simple uh, yet deeply powerful way to send email newsletters From the good people at MailChimp Uh, Take it away, Evan (music) All right, I'm here with Patrick Radden Keefe, who's come up from D.C., kindly, for an Atavist event this evening to talk about drugs, cartels, murder, all the above, and uh, also joining us on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So I made a little uh, list, a topic-based list of stories that you've done, and it goes like this. Drug cartels, human smuggling, arms dealers, fake wine, antiquities trading, the murder capital of New York, (laughs) New York, terrorism, basically any sort of illicit industry that I can think of. There may be ones that I can't think of. I haven't seen a straight-up prostitution story that you've done. I might have missed that one. I I aspire to one day. (laughs) But this all sort of leads me to start with the question... Was this a fascination that grew uh, from somewhere else, or did you just fall into reporting
2: about illicit networks? Um, I think it sort of happened in a sideways manner. I had done, um, I mean, like you, I had been really interested in um, the uh, kind of growth of the, um, counterterrorism apparatus post 9-11 and and wrote a book called chatter which is looking at wiretapping and kind of global eavesdropping and um there was a sense in which that was uh you know as as, as you know well it's kind of empirically you're in a tricky place because you're trying to sort of um, map out something that is ultimately kind of impossible to map. There's a limit to how much you can know, and and I think philosophically, I'm just drawn to <laughs> that kind of area. And then I did this piece um, in 2006. I, I guess I started in 2005 about Sister paying this this uh, woman in Chinatown who was a human smuggler, and. Um, spending time in Chinatown and hearing about this whole kind of illicit economy where she was bringing people over who would pay her to be smuggled to the United States, but then they would be here working in restaurants, and she would then send their money back to China through an underground bank. Mm-hmm. I kind of had this glimpse of this whole kind of global underground economy in which, um, you know, the market sort of reigns, and you can move or buy anything, and it's it's um, intricate and sophisticated. And uh, really hard to report on um, but kind of compelling and and uh, I just kept going back to the well on that and so in a sense i I just keep rewriting the same story um, but the characters and the and the and the stuff that's happening is are you know, are varied enough that it's, it's certainly kept me busy and interested.
1: yeah you you mentioned that you we were both working on uh, sort of intelligence networks counterterrorism things i was working on a book that ended up being much more about people who were kind of like entrepreneurially going after the homeland security market and and also sort of how we were addressing homeland security but i can't remember at what point your book hit but it was one of those where i saw it and i just went
2: fuck see i said the same thing about yours (laughs) first of
1: all (laughs) That was the most interesting stuff. Like, that was what I thought. Like, that's what you should write a whole book about. Like, what is happening with these surveillance networks? But you, before that, you had not written. I mean, I didn't remember seeing a byline no. previous to that. So um, you were in school then? I was in law school, yeah. I mean, I sort
2: of took a weird... Um, I I, I, had, I don't know whether this would be true today, but... Um, I started law school in 2001, and I I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to write, but I'd never really published anywhere. Um, And in a kind of perverse way, I think the barriers to entry for me to publish a book at that time were actually lower than they would have been for me to, like, get a feature assignment at The Atlantic or Mm -hmm. something. Um, I know this in part because I tried to get magazine assignments and couldn't. Um, At that time? Yeah. Yeah. I had been in grad school initially straight out of college. I went to the UK for a couple of years and I was in grad school over there and I didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing, you know, so I would like kind of write articles on spec and send them off, um, in hard copy. And, you know, I mean, I sort of
1: like literally print them out
2: and send them. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's embarrassing. Fantastic. Um, (laughs) and never really got anywhere with that. But, um, but yeah, so I did this book and then through the experience of writing the book, I was able to, um, to start writing for magazines, um which was, I, I think in some ways I did it backwards. But Yeah, um, I,
1: for most most people, I would say that's, that's sort of the inverse experience. But then, so just stepping back, so you decided to go to law school as a sort of route to becoming a writer or as a sort of I'll have a fallback position, uh, I can always get a job <laughs> yeah. kind of thing? Because I feel like that's like half the freelance writers in the world are still saying at whatever age they are, like maybe I can always go to law school if I need yeah. to.
2: It's funny. So, yeah, I mean, I tend to be um, – kind of risk averse by temperament and I I also think um it's just a weird business I mean it, it's um and I freelance for years and years and it's not um um it's still a tough business I mean in terms of actually making a, a living um so yeah I did always have this sense in mind of well I need I, I got to have a day job or at least the ability to have a day job
1: mhm so then here you are you've not done any magazine writing, you've not really done much reporting or any reporting, and so you pick basically the most obscure, difficult to uncover any information about topic that you could possibly come up with, which is the NSA. But how do you? Did you try to train yourself to become a reporter? Did you try to read? How did you know how to go
2: well, report? I, did, something? I mean, I didn't. I should say, and and it, and there are features. That's a book that I would have, I would write very differently today. Mm. Um, in a, in a weird way, I was afforded this incredible opportunity, which was to um, spend a couple of years learning how to <laughs> report and, and, and write a book. Um, when we pitched the book initially, you know, the, in the proposal, I mean, it was essentially, in some ways, it was kind of a meta project. The idea was, at that time, it's 2001, 9-11 has just happened. Um, suddenly, this very obscure area that people don't know a lot about um, has become much more germane. At that point, I think James Bamford's second book had just come out, so there had basically been two books written about the NSA and its fifty-year history, and they'd both been written by the same guy. Um, compared to you know a card catalog of, of books on the CIA and the FBI, and everything, right? Everything. Yeah. So um, in some ways, the, my kind of slightly arch way of putting it was you know I wanted to write a book about the impossibility of writing a book about the NSA. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, some of the reference points for me were were, were weird. Like I, I um, halfway through, my editor gave me uh, um, that book "Out of Sheer Rage" by Jeff Dyer, where he, you know it's sort that of is Jeff one Dyer, of my favorite like books. It's a actually. Great book. yeah. Um, but about his him kind of trying to write a book about D. H. Lawrence, um, which I know is a weird analog, but it was a, a really useful one for me because I think that in some ways um, you sort of have to incorporate that level of self consciousness in writing about a subject like that um, I don't know how successful it was but but I um, I sort of learned as I as I went
1: that book is also interesting because it simultaneously romanticizes the writer's life and sort of demystifies the writer's life he's always traveling around the world I remember he's looking for like the the perfect desk to write <laughs> at and he spends all this time finding it and then he finally finds it has like in Paris a view of the Eiffel Tower and he can't write a thing right, exactly. and then he misses all the old desks he had with no view <laughs> yeah um Did you, did you start thinking of yourself as, okay, if I do this book, like, this is going to be it, like, I'm going to start, I'm going to launch a writing career? Or was this sort of like, I'll write this book. I'll go back to being a lawyer. I'll see what happens. I'll do some stuff on the side.
2: Well, I never really wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, that's the thing. I, I didn't. I didn't go into law school with good faith. Uh, I'd say in that respect. <laughs> and every month when I write the loan check, um, <laughs> even to this day, uh, I. It's. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a decision I rue. It's. I. There's always some legal aspect to the stuff I write, and it was certainly very helpful, particularly with research, um, to get that education. But. Um, so in some ways, I came out thinking, how can I avoid being a lawyer? And um, I had really enjoyed writing. And I, I started doing, towards the end of law school, I, I took a year off to finish the book. And, and um, I got an assignment um, uh, to write a long-ish piece, or, you know, like a 4,000-word piece for the, um, for the New York Review of Books. And that was, um, that was sort of the first time I really got a shot at really doing magazine writing. Um, this was when Barbara Epstein was still alive and famously, you know, used to um, give young, untested writers the opportunity to do that sort of thing.
1: That's still, I mean, that's still coming in at the deepest end of the pool. Uh, it was,
2: it was a hugely lucky break, yeah. Um, and she was great and amazingly patient. I mean, I still remember that first, this first, like, piece of long writing that I gave to her. Which what she was it about? To. So it was, it was, it ended up being a chapter in the book. There had been this woman who was a British. Uh, eavesdropper who um, this is in the run up to the Iraq war she sort of blew the whistle and she f- um, there was a classified memo which she fed to the observer in the newspaper and, in the UK and she was prosecuted under the official secrets act and I went over and, and interviewed her I got her to talk to me and, and um, so it ended up being a chapter in the book um, but uh, but it was just a lucky break Like nobody had really been paying attention to that story on this side of the ocean and I I um, managed to get her to talk to me and um, it kind of went from there,
1: mm-hmm. and I think that's there's sort of an issue in general. I mean, when the, you talk about the kinds of areas that you're looking into, which are usually extremely secretive, by virtue of either the government wanting them to stay secret or being illicit in some way and wanting to be secret, and there's this sort of kind of reporters like James Risen or Risen mm-hmm. for the Times, you know, who's written about the NSA, who basically spent career, you know, a career developing sources that eventually will sort of pan out as far as i can tell whereas it seems more like you're you're dropping into an area where you're starting maybe not new you probably have a greater depth of knowledge than most people but how do you, how do you penetrate some area like that where do you start what is-
2: yeah i mean i i didn't again the the kind of deliberate like i mean gonzo is not is is like the farthest thing from my kind of authorial persona but i mean to some extent the approach was There's going to be a lot of first-person singular here. And um, some of it was literally, you know, I know that there is this massive moon-based-looking American eavesdropping installation right in the middle of the Yorkshire Moors in the UK where 2,000 Americans live and uh, eavesdrop on things going on around the planet. Um, They're never going to let me in and let me interview anyone, but I can at least go and walk the perimeter and talk to people in the area. And I think because it was such a... um, it, it was a topic that really hadn't been reported on. In some ways, I had some stuff that, in fact, would seem pretty amateur if everybody was on the story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was able to make a bit of hay with. And then there was other stuff where I kind of had to be a little creative. I mean, there was one thing I did that um, this was fun. The, um, so, you know, for years, the NSA wouldn't um, take out patents. Because mm-hmm. it was always so far ahead of any kind of consumer R and D that they never worried. It was just never worth it because you wouldn't want to expose what you had done, and you they weren't really worried about Silicon Valley or anyone else. And then in the '90s, um, as uh, as things really start getting going um, in a pretty serious way in Silicon Valley, they start beginning to worry, and they start taking out patents because they're essentially worried that you know private. Um, uh, inventors are going to come up with stuff.
1: What is the NSA patenting? Is it like encryption? All stuff kinds of thing? stuff.
2: Yeah, encryption stuff, voice recognition stuff, and you know the the kind of the the, the um, bargain in a patent is that you get the exclusive right, but you also have to publish what the device is. So I, I literally like went to the USPTO website and found dozens and dozens of these patents, and a lot of them were um, were you know it was stuff I wouldn't, couldn't really follow technically, but some of it stuff i could and in some instances there were literally um there were like technologies that the nsa had long been rumored to use um but there had never been any confirmation and in fact there were patents for them i mean you know steganography and stuff like that just and sitting worked, under yeah.
1: everyone's noses basically in the public right domain yeah it's not yeah even...
2: um and that so there was stuff like that um that was and then there was another thing too which is that the because of the self-consciousness of the book uh, the kind of tone that um i talked to some people who were like really i mean today writing a story for the new yorker i couldn't um they just wouldn't be sources because they're so unreliable and kind Mm -hmm. of wacky but with that book their unreliability and paranoia and wackiness in some ways um was all kind of part of that universe and so they were fair game yeah
1: yeah i remember that it's sort of like the conspiratorial part of it first of all it's fuel it's fueled by the secrecy but also it's sort of like it's wrapped up in your search for for whatever answers you can find around right. this. Right,
2: yeah, and, and I think to some extent that was the, you know, this was, again, much more true of the NSA when the book came out in 2005, but the, the whole area was just the province of sort of the tinfoil hat crowd in a way, um, in a way that's much different now. I mean, there are much more credible whistleblowers who have come out. There's been much more really good work since um, we know a lot more now.
1: Than we yeah, did, although uh, ironically the surveillance... Is probably deeper than it's ever been, even though the knowledge is greater. So right. that might cut against uh, exposure leading to more
2: control over. This is something what I continue to wonder about. Yeah, I mean, people are not. Um, I had sort of thought exactly. I had thought like, oh, if only the world knew, they'd be outraged, and you know, then the world found out, and they didn't really care. You know,
1: <laughs> how much of a how much of a sort of public service? Public service is not the right word, but do you? Th- pick topics do you explore things that you think i'm going to expose this and this will will make a change in the world or do you, is it more following the lines of what interests you and sort of looking for a good story to tell
2: it's probably a little bit of both i mean i've been so since finishing law school i've been um i've uh, hung my hat at a, at a think tank um the century foundation which has a kind of broadly progressive um identity but has given me a lot of um a lot of uh, latitude to, to pursue various things so there's often a policy implication in there or, or a, a kind of policy hook of one sort or another I, I tend not to like really prescriptive writing and I, I um, as often as not what I want to do is kind of get in and find the stories and the narratives um, almost as a delivery mechanism Um to just get people to sit up and think about it. I mean, honestly, the the areas that I'm interested in are so obscure, often that the thing that I want is for people just to understand and care a little bit more than they did before. It's not always. It doesn't always translate into a you know, which is why Capitol Hill should pass a law that does X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Um, I mean, and this and this is like another in a weird way another thread that runs through a lot of the work that I've done is that we're not even really at a point where you could think coherently about what your policy response would be because we just don't know. I mean, it's Uh that we don't even know what's happening. Like people just who are making those decisions aren't informed enough to they're not. I mean, yeah,
1: I've noticed. Um, I mean, there are a few stories where you take what's not, it's not a counterintuitive approach, but somehow I end up at a completely different place than I expected. Mm -hmm. And, I, the one in particular is the Ecuador story, you know, about this, about this big case against Chevron, or I guess it was Texaco, and then Chevron bought Texaco or vice versa, I can't remember, uh. um, where, in fact, I think I had run into you and you were working on that story, and when you just said, oh, it's about that big case in Ecuador, I had heard about that case, people had written about that case, and I think, oh, it's just going to unravel what happened to these people, but it actually goes a completely different direction, which is it's about this lawyer and a sort of obsessive desire to take on this corporation and the guy's not actually the hero. He's not like an anti-hero, sort of. But did you go in with that frame, or did you discover that partway through, and you just knew that case was interesting enough that you'd find something in it?
2: Um, Well, the the thing that was really interesting to me about that case was that um, he... So the guy, Stephen Donziger, had been written about a lot and had been... um, I and mean, he's this big, kind of wild and woolly personality, um, but also had been portrayed very heroically. And then the thing that interested me, that kind of got me interested, and in, in, um, that was actually an idea of my editor, uh, uh, Dan Zaleski at, at the New Yorker, to do the piece. I mean, he, he suggested it, but the um, the hook initially was this idea that Chevron was getting sued by these. Um, by these Ecuadorians, and the and and they turned around and sued the lawyer representing the Ecuadorians. So they kind of um, they kind of attacked the lawyer coming after them. Um, when I got to know Donziger, the thing that was interesting was that in some respects he was in a really sympathetic position legally, in that he was trying to kind of right this historic wrong and hold Chevron accountable. Um, but he's such a flawed guy that he gave them. I mean, as somebody said at one point, they said that. Um, you know, what he did was he basically gave a stick to Chevron, with which they proceeded to beat the hell out of him, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, it was also tough for me, because in that piece, I spent a lot of time with Steven Donziger, and he, um, I mean, I'm sure you've had situations like this, too, but we he was eventually going to go on the record, and... I kept coming back to New York and meeting with him and each time I would arrive for the on the record interview and he would say, well, let's just keep it on background today, but next time we'll go on the record. <laughs> and so we, you know, we had, I don't know, half a dozen really long conversations There were days I spent with him and, and um, he ended up not, not going on the record. Um, but in person, he's a very beguiling, um, kind of seductive uh, character. And so it took, a little bit of time for me to—I was initially just so charmed by the guy um, that it took a while for me to kind of dig through and.
1: And what was? Did you get a response from him after the piece? Or I never guess, heard anything. Oh really?
2: I heard um, from his. There was a woman who works closely with him and handles their kind of public relations for the plaintiffs, and she um, she was very uh, she was very angry. I mean, it was one of these things where, I, I, in some respects, I was. I was v- quite sympathetic to the position of the plaintiffs, um, but uh, I also wasn't going to pull punches on their transgressions. And, and I think there have been there had been a really long piece by William Langovicia and Vanity Fair um, about the case a few years earlier. And you know, it, it was, he's an amazing writer, and it's a great piece. And that was a that was a kind of a different moment in the litigation. But looking back at that, I think that's a little bit to my feeling as I was reporting my piece was like that was too a little bit too much of a kind of David and Goliath story it was Mm -hmm. a bit more complicated than that
1: Mm -hmm. and how do you how do you feel about the I'm not going to use that um Janet Malcolm quote because if there's a more overused quote in like media criticism boy it's a great one though it's it is it's worthy but um but in terms of you know getting really close to to people in the stories and then sort of how they're how they're treated by you do you do you uh, are you thinking about it along the way or are you sort of like all right you know befriend them and then I'll have my time to sit down or how do you approach sources like that guy
2: uh, it's hard um, I think to some extent it varies on the basis of how uh, media savvy they are um, I mean in some instances there are people who are you know, I read about Munzer al kassar He's a he's a crazy arms dealer who um has spent his life doing fairly bad things and and uh I don't really care what he thinks when the article comes out on some level. I mean he's not gonna be happy, he will feel on some level betrayed because you know, he didn't speak to me but his daughter spoke to me and you know, I, I was he kind of blessed the article in a way. Um And
1: did you give him a, a spiel that was sort of like I'm going to be fair did you did you to, in order yeah. to get that interview did you have to sort of lay out some argument for why yeah
2: i mean i don't it, it's funny i I think some people will just sort of say no and they they see no point. The line that I'll often use with people is is which you know, I mean it's not um, unique to me I'm sure we all use it is essentially you just say the train is leaving the station here I mean the article's going to come out one way or the other. you have an opportunity to influence the narrative or not influence the narrative, I'm going to kind of play it straight and and just kind of report on what I have. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't want to hear any complaints from you after the article comes out uh, about it not adequately reflecting your view of things if you're not going to even give me any kind of access or conversation. Um, but look, it's tough. I mean, I think they're not always... Um, the people you talk to aren't always... Uh, um, Uh, (laughs) Crooked arms dealers And
1: um, (laughs) Although in your case Though though
2: they often are It's true It's true Which makes me feel Much better about things But the um, And I do think I mean one thing That Jenna Malcolm It's funny I reread that book recently And one thing she Really nails Is the um, You know There's the vanity There's the sort of vanity On the part of the person Who decides against Their better judgment To talk to you And I think vanity Often does play a role But there's also a, A kind of Willful, deluded, wishful thinking in which you think, um, I will deliver my story, and and this journalist who is you know a serious journalist and presents himself as such will be my ventriloquist, and will kind of, and then there's always that feeling of betrayal. Um, I've found that even if I tell people up front, as which as I've actually just done recently in a number of cases, you know where I'll say like. To, the, to people who, who aren't as familiar with the, the kind of rules of the road, at the at the outset of the interview, look, when I have all my notes and I have my recordings and what have you, I'm not going to be editing with the mind to what you'd be comfortable with. So if there's stuff you want me to know but you don't want to see it in the article, I want you to say off the record first. I and mean, you can actually tell people that at the outset of a conversation. And 20 minutes later, it's either that they've forgotten it or that they um, – I don't know what that there's a kind of conversational sort of fugue state you get into where you're just deluded into thinking, well, now I will say X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, at times people are pretty horrified afterwards when it.
1: Yeah. I mean, partly, I I always think it's, you know, who has someone outside of maybe like going into therapy, who has someone actually sit down and express like genuine interest in everything that they say? It's just so, it's intoxicating to have someone just sort of like, okay, then tell me what happened, then tell me what happened. It's kind of like you, you want to succumb to that yeah. in some ways. I feel like that, that, that overtakes people and against their better judgment sometimes.
2: It's funny. I was talking to somebody the other day who does um, uh, kind of corporate investigations type stuff, um, and he was saying that they um, – I mean, to me this all sounds so incredibly dodgy, but uh, you want to find out about some company – Um, But you don't want to say why you're finding out so you'll essentially kind of come up with a fake identity or you'll you'll go in and you'll say hi I'm looking to make investments in I don't know what you know Kazakhstan and I know that you've been involved in Kazakhstan And I'd just be interested in hearing about your experiences And in fact what you want to know about is the guy Himself and what he did in Kazakhstan, but you're pretending to be pretending to be somebody else, you know and um I said, how do you get them to... I would just be so innately suspicious if somebody came up to me and said, hey, tell me about your business experience. (laughs) Um, And he said, oh, God, you know, everybody desperately wants to tell their story. And if if it's somebody coming and saying, like, oh, I'm, I'm green in this particular area of investing, I don't have a lot of experience, can you tell me about your, you know, your vast wisdom based on your years in the region, they will sit down and tell you all kinds of things which then go into the confidential report about them that <laughs> goes uh, to your um by boss yeah know.
1: exactly um i want to talk a little bit about the um this times magazine story and it's been remarked upon i think in people who who read it and i seem like it got a lot of attention too um that it was this very it was like a business story it was a business story about a mexican cartel and sort of like how it operates end to end did you uh did you Conceive it that way, or did it end up that way?
2: I pitched it that way. Yeah, yeah. I pitched it as a as a Harvard Business School case study of a cartel, and the the Sinaloa is just the kind of you know they're the biggest, they're the most integrated and sophisticated. So if you were to do it, um, if you were to sort of test that proposition on a cartel, that would be the best one to do it on.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, but it's so sprawling. I mean, there must have been dozens of court cases, or more than dozens of court cases, involving these guys. How how long was the process of doing that story? Six months. And the question I always wonder about with a story like that is, how do you know? How did you know when you were done? Because it seems like there's an just an endless amount of information. You could you could keep going back to Mexico. You could keep yeah. going and digging into finding more. Court how did you sort of decide? Okay, this is the scope of what I want to do, and now I've accomplished it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't. I. I I think probably a lot, it's funny, And talking to a lot of people who write these kinds of long pieces, I think a lot of us wrestle with this, but I over-report. I mean, you know, I, I knew I was done probably a month or six weeks after I was done, <laughs> um, if that makes sense. Um, I, you get into it, and, and particularly when you, um, on the investigative stuff, I mean, it takes on a logic of of its own that's actually really counterproductive for me where if there's some document that they won't give me access to, or if there's some element of the chronology at a certain point, it doesn't matter how potentially important it is to the story. I just kind of want to see if I can get it. Yeah. Um, And in terms of managing my own time, I'm realizing that's something I need to get a lot better at because I go chasing after some stupid shit, you know, and I end up with a level of granular detail that actually makes the writing harder because there's so much stuff, and a lot of it is, like, cool stuff that you then try and you're just shoehorning stuff in all over the place that's going to come out in the first edit, um, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: I guess the question is, does all of that sort of leach into your having that detail to sort of leach into your brain in a way that you actually couldn't, yeah, it's going to come out, but you actually couldn't write the story if you hadn't gone and gotten it.
2: I think, I think maybe it's that. I mean, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about how I have this this kind of risk aversion gene. But I, um, if there's one thing that really bugs me, and maybe this is especially acute living in Washington, it's kind of faux expertise. It's people blathering on about something they don't actually know or understand in a lot of detail, and I think journalists are guilty of this, but boy, policy people are too, um, and and academics are too. I mean, there's nothing that drives me crazier than academics who will sort of, you know, they have this kind of social scientific um, uh, approach, but then when you actually look at their end notes, it's all newspaper articles, you know, and I'm sort of wondering what are you, you know, so what are you actually basing this on? Um, so some of it, I think, for me is is almost a kind of prophylactic sense that I don't want to weigh in on this until I really feel like I've kind of gotten in there and, um, and really understood it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe you're right. I mean, maybe that's part of it, is just having the confidence to write, in a way, um, even if the vast majority of the stuff isn't going to end up on the page.
1: Right. And you took a year off from journalism or I don't know if you would describe it that way but yeah. um I'm really tell me a little bit about about what you're doing and sort of how that came about
2: Yeah um the my spooky interlude um <laughs> so after I moved to Washington uh I was introduced to a guy who worked at the Pentagon in the office of the Secretary of Defense
1: this is what this is after, but this is after your the Snakehead book came out. Yeah, this yeah. was
2: after the Snakehead had come out, and um, the it was sort of just after it came out. And at that point, I'd been I'd already been writing about these kind of transnational crime issues quite a bit in a series of articles and and in that book. And um, this guy had read some of my stuff and basically said, you know, what would you think about coming in for a year to the government and getting a clearance and being a kind, of, almost like a kind of fellow, um, this guy worked in the within the office of the secretary of defense in like their drugs and thugs shop, um, which amazingly, because of the war on drugs uh, being very popular on Capitol Hill, um, this one little office had a 1.4 billion dollar budget. <laughs> And when you say
1: little, how how little is the actual the office? The office is
2: about it's small. It's about the size of the Adams office, <laughs> actually, though they have they have uh, they have they have a few more staff. Um, and it was it's called Counter-Narcotics and Global Threats, and I was sort of more on the global threats side of the ledger, but it was all the fun, I mean, fun from my perspective, stuff. So it's Somali piracy and uh, money laundering and, um, you know, gun running. And,
1: and they're trying to figure out the, the sort of national security implications of those things and what, what's going on in each of those areas?
2: Yeah, so it's a policy shop, but they also are, you know, they're kind of, uh, some of it is looking at places where DOD is actually active. Some of it is thinking about, what should our policy response be? I mean, so, you know, if there is a ship hit by Somali pirates, should the U.S. Navy feel that it needs to go in and intervene in some way? Does you know, it doesn't matter if there are Americans on board? Or what if there aren't Americans on board? What if the ship is, you know, owned by an American company but flying another flag or, you know, whatever? All those kinds of um, questions. And also a lot of questions relating to to the drug trade as well. and. So it was an amazing experience. I mean, it was really, um, it was kind of a a, a technocratic education, right? I I, I sort of figured out a little bit about the nature of the dysfunction of the bureaucracy um, and saw these issues from the inside, which was great. And and frankly, I mean, got a clearance and, like, read a lot of classified stuff, which if you're somebody who has thought about these issues from the outside is – is an appealing notion uh in some ways did it sort of
1: confirm what you thought or were you surprised at what you found
2: well i was i mean what was disappointing to me and as a journalist and and kind of dispiriting, dispiriting to me as a citizen was that um in many instances at least in these areas that i'm i'm um obsessed with uh we didn't know all that much more than you can get from good investigative journalists. So even with all the resources of the CIA and the NSA and, you know, DIA and whatever else, um, there are these areas that remain incredibly obscure. And um, there were a number of those that I was kind of looking into where I would kind of pitch an approach to a given thing and sort of say, okay, well, let's pull together everybody from the interagency and see what we know about it. And and, um, the answer was sometimes less than you would hope.
1: Hmm. Did, was there a possibility of staying longer than a year?
2: There was. Um, but I, I think I, uh, I kind of got it, you know, I think I kind of hit an inflection point at about 10 months where the really steep, um, like vertiginous learning curve began to plateau a bit. And, um, I think I also had a realization that, um, in order for me to... I mean, I missed writing, honestly, and I wanted to kind of get back out and have that autonomy. But also, um, I didn't really have much of an impact, frankly. I think it's hard to have an impact in the government. I got way more out of the experience than they got out of me. And looking around at the people who do have an impact, I realized that I'd have to stick around for a long time to kind of become like a bureaucratic ninja, and they, they exist, and it's amazing to see them do what they do. Um, but I don't think that you can... Um, Like being precocious is almost never enough Hmm. uh, to, there are people like that. I mean, you know, Jake Sullivan is the head of policy planning at the State Department. He's a young guy. I was at law school with him. Um, It's amazing what he's been able to do as somebody who's fairly new to government. Um, But those people are pretty few and far between um, in terms of people get really effective. So Mm -hmm. I think that was part of it too.
1: This, I should have touched on this earlier, but I'm I just really curious about sort of like your story discovery process. Like where do these things come from? And do you have sort of standard ways for looking for stories or keep story file? Like how do you literally do you do you come into the stories? Whether the New York Magazine story about the murder capital of New York or the cartels or whatever, like do those emerge from the same process or do they, is it different every time? It's
2: random. And, and at this point, I mean, it, it has gotten to a, a point which is both good and bad, which is that people are always suggesting stuff. Um, that's mostly bad, honestly, because most of the ideas are interesting, but not when when the when the piece is going to take you like four, five, six months to do. You tend to be very, very choosy about it. So, um, but random ways. I mean, the 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 piece about Newberg was a was like a front page story in the Times. There was a big raid, and it just seemed so weird to me that you had this huge gang raid in this tiny little kind of picturesque part of the uh of the you know uh, up, up uh, on the hudson um this small town mm-hmm. um that struck me as just kind of inherently intriguing and weird and then i found out that it was the most dangerous part of the state and much more dangerous than new york city and then i found out that the fbi guy there was just kind of an amazing galvanizing interesting character um so that all kind of fell into line. A lot of the time it's that. It's seeing some little thing, or, I mean, not that a front-page story in the Times was little, <laughs> but, you know, getting getting an inkling. And I, I, look, I think talking to other, other reporters, you get this. I think a lot of us have this. In a weird way, if you're writing at 8,000 words, you have this luxury, which is that, to some extent, the first draft of all this stuff is daily reporters doing their stories, and often you can read that story and sort of get an inkling that, oh, there's more, you know, this is great, but you could do this at more than twelve hundred words. There's probably more if I were to dig into this. Um, mm-hmm. Increasingly, it's about finding those characters. Um.
1: And the and you generally go in with the characters uh, in hand. Yeah, like the investigator in the Newberg story. Yeah. That guy.
2: I think you need them because, at least for the in terms of the stuff that I write, there's always a level of. Um, I think just because I'm really into complexity, you know, and, and these complicated stories and figuring out how to kind of tell them as a narrative that is going to be explicable. And there's almost always some kind of court process or some, you know, there's often like a document angle on the, on the stuff that I'm looking at. So it's teasing that out and finding the story, unless you have a Virgil, you know, unless you have somebody who the reader can kind of latch on to, to guide them through that thicket of crap, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you don't. I just think it's it's too tough sometimes. Um,
1: yeah, to just structure around. So a couple more things. One is, do you have any stories sitting on your hard drive? Kill stories that you are like the lost, the one that never made it, or
2: I mean, it's, it's stuff that gets abandoned all the time. And there's also been. I mean, you know, it's very often the case with me that there'll be some story that I. And we all have. We all have this this experience, right? But that you find something and you think. What an amazing story! As soon as I get out from under on this project I'm working on now, I'm going to pitch it, and uh, and then someone else does it. Yeah. Um, I mean that's just happened dozens of times. I think in some ways, when you do this kind of writing, we all have similar instincts, and you can see when you read about it in the paper, you can tell there's a great feature there. The question then becomes, who's going to get their shit together to do it first?
1: There's something kind of sad about it to me sometimes when you see you just see something and you know like, editors all over New York just picked up the phone and called somebody. Or, like, there's. it's true that it's the same instincts, but it also seems like a weird herd mentality for a tiny herd. Totally. It's a little bitty herd of people who are right. all sort of like, oh, that's a great feature story.
2: And and the thing is, I mean, the, and, and here's the tricky thing, is that they're all reading the same publications. I mean, you do get a kind of, and they're all on Twitter with each other. So you get this kind of strange echo chamber thing. I mean there there are I should have this kind of story with many many more publications, but for instance, um I get the American Bar Association journal. Um because I'm a member of the bar, uh it comes for free. And um there are stories in it that are actually kind of great and that don't get covered a lot. Um and like the American Lawyer and you know these ver- there are these various stories um, that I've, and sometimes it'll be a thing where I read about something in another context, and I find out like the like the one definitive, or not definitive, but like the one big piece was written in the American Lawyer. Any kind of um, local papers or specialist periodicals. I mean, anything you can do to kind of break out of that somewhat insular um, information universe we're all in that seems limitless, but is actually pretty cloistered. I think is probably a good idea. I always assume that that David Gran, you know. Um, immerses himself yeah. in bizarre. Who knows what he's... really I got really
1: obsessed with that for a while, and I started subscribing. I was subscribing to, like, Mortuary Management Magazine. It still shows up at one that's of my like, old addresses sometimes. Like, you can take that to a level where you're not really... It's just about the act of it. It's not actually finding any stories, but...
2: I guess, yeah. But it, but I do think there's something to it, though, that the... Um, that... Uh, finding that thing that's just totally, completely off the radar... Um, it would probably be a huge advantage.
1: And then the other the kind of last thing I want to ask was just about, you mentioned with Chatter, you would do that book completely differently now. Have you, are there other, are there any other sort of do-overs or, and or do you have any that um, have sort of blown up in some way afterwards, you know, in terms of uh, you realize the story should have been different or you, the information came to light you didn't have or anything like that?
2: I don't think that there have been things that have blown up. I mean, one of the things that's a little strange is watching, um, spending four months on something or five months and really immersing yourself in it. And then you have your piece, which kind of aspires to be the definitive piece, but the story continues to evolve. and. It's been interesting watching The New Yorker deal with this. They've started increasingly having people kind of revisit things yeah. on, the, on the website, which I think is great and something I want to do more of. But, um, but I mean, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a piece about um, wine fraud, and, and that case, I think that piece came out I don't remember, in 2007 or 2008 or something, that case has continued to kind of do all of these interesting things, and I kind of keep an eye on it. Um, Anyway, so that, that has a kind of a weird, uh, the Chevron case is another one. I mean, it keeps getting, and what it, what it means for me is honestly, like anytime there's a new story, I'll tweet about it, which is in some respects, totally unsatisfying, <laughs> um, but it's kind of the best I can do at the moment. Um, it's strange though, because I guess the best you can do is kind of give a snapshot at, at a moment in time. And...
1: Yeah. Um, all right, we got to get you to cool. doing an actual public speaking engagement, so Jesus. thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening to Longform. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you want to check out the articles Patrick and Emma were just talking about, they're in the show notes at longform.org/podcast. There's links in there for Patrick's books too, Chatter and the Snakehead. You should buy them. Thanks as always to Lauren Kirchner, our editor, and to Tiny Letter, our sponsor. Until next week.